Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I'm so thankful for what you've done for us. You would send your Son to die on our behalf that we could have forgiveness in you. I pray that you'll fill us with your Spirit this morning, that we'll hear your Word preached, that our hearts will be changed by the power of that, Lord. Uh, give me the words to say and give us hearts to hear, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Let's start reading in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 18. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment to be made. Therefore the slave fell to the ground and was prostrating himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And feeling compassion, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and was pleading with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy with you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your hearts. Corey Ten Boom wrote the following. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with his skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights. The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me. 
ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. Corey Ten Boom's story, while incredible, is not unique. We read about Christians who forgive the murder of their spouse or their children, or who forgive their parents who abuse them. In Scripture, we see Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 60 say, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Story like, stories like these move us, because the radical forgiveness they demonstrate is rare in our culture. How would you act in Corey's situation? Or Stephen's? In the 18th chapter of Matthew, we see God's expectation for forgiveness between believers. This passage of Scripture can be broken into five sections. It starts with Peter's question, then forgiveness of a massive debt, then unforgiveness of a minor debt, the king's response, and finally, a warning for us. Let's start by looking at Peter's question in verse 21. Of, chapter, of Matthew chapter 18. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. First, let's remember the context here. Christ had just been ter- teaching on church discipline in verses 15 through 20. Let's just read starting in verse 15. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. One thought that comes to mind as you hear this is, How often do I need to forgive? If I bring a sin to my brother and he listens, I've won my brother. But what if the next day 
He sins against me in the same way. I bring it to him again, and I've won him again. And then the next day, and the next, and the day after that. How often do I have to endure being sinned against? That's where Peter's mind goes. So he asks, must I forgive up to seven times? Peter has understood through Christ's teaching that he must forgive. Otherwise, how will he have won his brother? He's even gone beyond what the contemporary Jews taught. In contemporary Jewish teaching, a man must be forgiven three times. Yoma 86b of the Talmud says the following. Rabbi Yosai Bar Yehuda says, When a person commits a transgression the first time, he is forgiven. A second time, he is forgiven. A third time, he is forgiven. But the fourth time, he is not forgiven. Peter's really digging into an important point here. There will be sin amongst a group of believers. We will sin against each other. And Peter's addressing the fact that some may struggle even with persistent and repeated sin. And if a brother or sister sins against us repeatedly, what do we do? How many times must we endure? His question's a good one. He's applying the Lord's teaching already and considering the implications. He's used to a culture that forgives three times. But he's, he's already realized that's not enough. So in what he thinks is his graciousness, he more than doubles it and says, must I forgive even seven times? And though his question demonstrates Peter's growing understanding, Christ's response is quick and decisive to the contrary. I do not say seven times, but 77 times. Note, the Greek here is ambiguous. It could mean 77 or 70 times 7. I think 77 is more appropriate because I believe Christ is making an allusion to Lamech in Genesis 4.24. It says, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77. He's contrasting Lamech avenging 77 times with what we should do, which is forgive 77 times. Now, whether it's 77 as we see in the ESV or 70 times 7 as we read in the LSV, the point's the same. Christ is saying we must forgive innumerable times. Though Peter's growing in understanding, he's still thinking too small. Christ is saying you never stop forgiving. You don't have a booklet with everyone's name in it, and there's a page with Mark's name on it with a bunch of ticks, and a page with Joseph's name and a couple of ticks, and there's a page with Dan's name. Well, five pages for five Dan's. And then I sin against you one more time, and you forgive me, and you put a tick and count, oh, there's 77. I don't need to forgive Mark anymore. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we never stop forgiving our brothers. Luke 17, 3 and 4 illustrates the same point. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Brothers and sisters, we will sin against each other. We will need to forgive one another. As long as our flesh continues to war against our spirit, we'll be dealing with this issue. Christ commands us here to forgive. We've seen in verses 21 and 22, Peter's question. Now we see in verse 23, Christ reiterates the point with a parable. And the parable begins with the forgiveness of a massive debt. Reading starting in verse 23. 
For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. Therefore, the slave fell to the ground and was prostrating himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll repay you everything. And feeling compassion, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. And Christ starts here with, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like. And this is important to establish context. Therefore here is referring back to his previous statement. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So this parable is in the context of Christians forgiving their brothers. That's important as we continue through the parable. This parable is about Christian forgiveness. The term kingdom of heaven is unique to Matthew, but it's synonymous with kingdom of God as seen in Mark and Luke, as well as a few times in Matthew. For example, in Matthew 13, 31, we see the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. And both begin with the kingdom of heaven, while the same parables in Luke 13:18 have the kingdom of God. Kingdom of, he- of heaven is simply Matthew's way of referring to the same concept. It could be because Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and Jews would not say the name of God. So Matthew wanted to make it easier for the Jews to understand and to accept what he was writing. Regardless, Matthew is simply using the word heaven to replace the word God. And the kingdom of heaven refers to God's reign over all creation for all eternity. It's described throughout the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 103.19, Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And Psalm 145.12 and 13, to make known to the sons of men his mighty deeds and the glory of his majesty, of the majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures from generation to every generation. In Daniel 4.3, how great are his signs and how strong are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. But there's also a sense where the kingdom of God is the kingdom reserved for his elect, as we see in John 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And John 3.5 reads, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So we can think of the kingdom of heaven in two ways. More generally, it's symbolic of God's reign, reign over all creation. And in specific, it symbolizes his rule and reign over his elect. And in this parable, I believe it's referring to the latter, God's rule over his elect. That's because the context here is clearly how believers should behave. For this reason, I think it's right to understand all of the slaves in this parable as believers. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts. The king here is most likely settling with his most high-ranking governors. It brings the idea of a king settling his accounts regularly with those he's entrusted to run his kingdom. And we know they must be high-ranking officials because of the amount that the slave owes. 
one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. A talent was approximately equivalent to 20 years' wage. To put that into today's context, I found the median American annual income is $55,000. Multiply that by 20, and that's, a talent would be worth about $1.1 million today. So 10,000 talents would equal approximately $11 billion. $11 billion is an unfathomable sum to all of us. And even that underrepresents what's being described here by Christ. Because the, the word used for 10,000 is myrios. That's the largest number represented by a word in the Greek language. It's where we get the word myriad. Myriad is defined as a countless or extremely great number. And that's the appropriate way to understand the word myrios in this parable. He owes a countless and therefore unpayable amount. Since a slave could not repay, the king orders that he, his family, and all that he has be sold to recoup whatever he can for the slave's debt. At this point, the man would have no possible recourse. He'd have no way to ever escape. He will be in this servitude forever. And we see the illustration that Christ is making here. The slave owes a debt he can never repay. The picture here is the sinner before God. Every person will one day face this exact situation. We'll all at some point be before the king faced with our infinite debt. And by the way, everyone will know at that moment, elect and reprobate, that they are guilty. Did you know your guilt when you first repented and believed? We will know our guilt either at the moment that Christ saves us or at the final judgment before the great, great right throne. Yes, even sinners being condemned to eternity in the lake of fire at the great white throne, they will know they're guilty and they will know the consequences of their sin are right and just. That was that slave at this point. He was a sinner being condemned to eternity in hell and he knew that that condemnation was just having been brought face to face with the magnitude of his debt, he recognizes his pitiful state and he falls to the ground and prostrates himself. His posture here emphasizes his desperation. He's begging for mercy. He says, have patience on me and I will repay you. And in his utter desperation, he's pleading. It would have been obvious to everyone that he could never repay such a sum. Even so, he's likely earnest in what he's saying, even if foolish. In reality, he could never pay such a debt. Nonetheless, his, his attitude shows his brokenness and his willingness to throw himself upon the mercy of the king. Martin Luther captures the essence of this in his commentary on this section. I quote him here. Before the king drew him to account, he had no conscience, does not feel the debt, and would have gone right along made more debt, and cared nothing about it. But now that the king reckons with him, he begins to feel the debt. So it is with us. The greater part does not concern itself about sin. It goes on securely, fears not the wrath of God. They say indeed with the mouth that they have sin, but if they were serious about it, they would speak far otherwise. This servant too says, before the king reckons with him, so much I owe to my Lord, namely 10,000 talents. But now that the reckoning is held and he, his Lord orders him, his wife, 
his children and everything to be sold, now he feels it. So too we feel it in earnest when our sins are revealed in the heart, when the record of our debts is held before us. Then we exclaim, I am the most miserable man. There is none as unfortunate as I on the earth. Such knowledge makes a real man humble. It works contrition so that one can come to the forgiveness of sins. End quote. At the slave's true brokenness over his sin and his plea for mercy, the king shows mercy. And not only does he request, grant his request for patience, but he goes beyond and forgives him of his debt entirely. Consider what that means. We see the picture of God's forgiveness. We're all like this slave. We're helplessly in debt due to our sin. We have no hope to repay. The slave here recognizes his pitiful state, his guilt before the king, and he throws himself as in mercy of the king. And that's exactly what each of us do when we believe and we're confronted by God with our sin. And the king in his great mercy lavishes grace upon the slave and forgives him his infinite debt. And instead of the eternal wrath, he has eternal life in the presence of God. That's what the slave's been given. That's what you and I have been given. And that's what we see in this illustration. We've seen Peter's question and forgiveness of a massive debt. Now, let's look at the unforgiveness of a minor debt, starting in verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and was pleading with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. The story turns here in verse 28. The slave that was just forgiven an unfathomable debt, he goes and finds a fellow slave that owed him. We can't be sure if he found him by chance or if he was searching him out. It could be either. It seems likely to me that he went to find him, particularly when you consider his reaction when he found him. He seized him and began to choke him. Even if he wasn't searching him out, he had at least been thinking about getting what he was owed. The fellow slave here refers to a brother in Christ. His brother owed him 100 denarii. A denarii was worth a day's wage. At about $220 per day in the United States, that's about $22,000 owed in today's money. Or at that time, a year was about 300 days worth of work. So 20 years wages would be equivalent to about 6,000 denarii. Comparing that to 10,000 talents, 100 denarii would be about one six hundred thousandth what the slave owed the king. The slave attacked his debtor, demanding payment. Notice the fellow slave's response. He says, he fell to the ground pleading and said, have patience with me and I will repay you. That should sound familiar because it's the identical reaction the slave had to the king when the king pronounced judgment on his debt. The main difference here is the amount owed and the likelihood of being repaid. The first slave had no hope of paying back his debt, whereas the second one could pay in time. The slave's response, though, is opposed to that of the king. He orders the man to be put in prison until he pays. 
And the similarity of the situations here, it's purposeful. It's meant to contrast the two reactions. The king in his mercy and the slave in his lack of mercy. And the illustration again here is clear. We see a picture of the Christian who's unforgiving and unmerciful. His brother has committed some real offense against him. And not an insignificant one. A hundred denarii, though nothing compared to 10,000 talents, it's still a significant sum. This is a man who refuses to forgive an offense committed against him by his brother. This picture also, when we just take a step back for a minute and look more broadly, is crazy. And purposefully so. No one would act this way. No Christian would do this. It's absurd to be forgiven 10,000 talents and then go immediately and assault and throw in prison someone who owes you so little in comparison. That's the point. It's meant to shock us because sometimes we need to be shocked out of our stupor. Our hearts are more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. We can justify a lack of forgiveness in our deceitful hearts. But this parable shows us what's really going on. It's absurd not to forgive our brothers of an offense. We've seen Peter's question, the forgiveness of a massive debt, the unforgiveness of a minor debt. Now, let's look at the king's response, starting in verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. This section starts with the response of the fellow slave who witnessed these two acts. Notice that they were deeply grieved. The ESV says they were greatly distressed. And the slaves here represent other Christians in the the body. They're deeply affected by this slave's lack of forgiveness. And sin should always grieve us. But in this case, it's also the lack of compassion that he displays after being shown such compassion by the king. And consider what's being described here. These two slaves have relationships with all the other Christians in the church. And they're greatly distressed over this lack of forgiveness. Unforgiveness between brothers will disturb the unity of the church. Paul addressed this when he wrote Philemon. Turn to Philemon with me. Pastor recently preached on Philemon. You'll remember it's a letter that was a personal note to Philemon where Paul asked his friend Philemon to forgive his former slave Onesimus who's greatly sinned against him by running away and probably taking things of value when he left. Let's look at Philemon 1-7. through Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Othia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the full knowledge of every good thing which is in you for the sake of Christ. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Look at verse 6. 
This is a challenging verse, and good Bible expositors can come up with different interpretations. But this is how I understand it. Through our mutual participation in the Christian life, we will actively build our faith in living out the principles we have knowledge of. That is, what is good and right. And this applied directly to the situation with Onesimus that Paul's talking about. It'll be a chance for Philemon to live out his knowledge of every good thing and engage in Christian fellowship with Onesimus and the entire body of believers in Colossae. And notice verse 2. Paul doesn't just see this as a personal issue between Philemon, Onesimus, and himself. This is a matter that has deep impact and import for the entire church. But how can that be so? Isn't this just an issue between Philemon and his runaway slave? In our culture, that, that feels like a private issue, right? This is my household. These are the things I care about in my home. But no, Paul makes that clear. The church needs to know about this private matter. In verse 2, he says it's addressed to the church. Paul's illustrating in verse 6, working with verse 2, the importance, in, importance of the fellowship and mutual love of the church. If Philemon does not forgive, it will damage the church. Onesimus is going to be a part of that local church. And to have two members of the church in a state of unforgiveness will hurt the unity of the church. So back in Matthew 18, we see similarly to the lesson of the importance of forgiveness in the unity of the church in Philemon, the lack of forgiveness in the forgiven slave here impacts the unity of the brothers and sisters in this parable. Unforgiveness between us will cause disunity among us. Next, the king summons the slave again. And we see in verse 33, the key principle being taught in the whole parable. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? The king expected the slave to forgive as he forgives. The only right response to a wrong when shined in the light of what we've been forgiven of is forgiveness. Verse 34 is a difficult verse for a number of reasons. First, it says his Lord moved with anger. Second, it says that the slave was handed over to the torturers. And third, it seems to say that he's required to repay what the king had already forgiven in verse 27. For these three reasons, many interpreters have come to the conclusion that this parable cannot be speaking about believers. But look at the evidence. It's clear this parable must be speaking to believers. As mentioned earlier, verse 23 starts with, for this reason. And it's referring back to Peter's statement, how many times must I forgive my brother? And verse 35, in giving us a warning about not forgiving, he says, his heavenly father will do the same to them. Meaning that believers he was telling this parable to will face the same fate that this slave faces. So if we're convinced that this parable is speaking of believers... How do we reconcile these three points? Let's examine each. First, the Lord was moved with anger. But can the Lord be moved with anger at one of his saved people, at one of his elect? Well, the Lord is always moved in anger at sin. Sin is an affront against a holy God. His Lord here is moved at, at, with anger at the slave's unrepentant sin of unforgiveness. 
Next, the slave was handed over to the torturers. Again, could the, could the Lord hand over one of his children, one of his sons, to torturers? Let's consider 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine and 30. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. The Corinthians were coming together to eat the Lord's Supper. But there were divisions between the rich and the poor. The rich would bring their food and eat it before the poor could even arrive. The Corinthians were making a mockery of the Lord's table. And as a result, some were weak and some had died. Consider Hebrews 12.6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. That's what's meant in this parable by being turned over to the torturers. Thirdly, how can the king require repayment of what he had already forgiven? Clearly, a good king cannot forgive something and then require repayment for the same thing later, right? The key to understanding this, though, is that in his lack of forgiveness the slave had accrued a new debt. Consider 1 John 1, 8-10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. The slave must confess his sin and repent. Turn with me to Psalm 32. We'll finish this idea by looking at this psalm. It looks very similar to what's described of the slave here. Psalm 32, starting in verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. Salah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Look at David's statements here. His bones wasted away. He groaned all day long. The Lord's hand was heavy upon him. His vitality was drained away. That's what's being described in this parable as being handed over to the torturers. It's the Lord's discipline for unrepentant sin in our lives. Then notice in verse 5, David, in the context or words of this parable, he repaid all that was owed, and the Lord forgave him of the iniquity of his sin when he confessed his transgressions to Yahweh. We started by looking at Peter's question. Then forgiveness of a massive debt. Next, we saw unforgiveness of a minor debt and the king's response. Now, let's look at a warning for us. Verse 35. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your hearts. Christ concludes his parable with a simple interpretation and a stark warning. If we do not forgive, we will similarly face the slave's terrible fate and be handed over to the torturers. And this is consistent throughout Scripture. 
Matthew 6, 12 through 15. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And Ephesians 4:32. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also graciously forgave you. In Colossians 3:13, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. We saw in verse 21 and 22, Peter's question. As he understood the implications of Jesus' teaching on church discipline in verses 15 through 20, he began to apply it to himself and asked a very important question. How many times must I forgive my brother? Though he was growing in his understanding, his graciousness was still far short of what God requires. After Peter's question, we saw through Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant, the forgiveness of a major debt, as the king settled the account of his slave who owed him 10,000 talents. With no hope of repayment, he threw himself at the king's feet and begged for more time to repay. In the king's mercy, he gave not only what was asked, but well beyond and completely forgave the unpayable debt. In this section of the passage, we saw the picture of a sinner being brought to account before a holy God. We have no hope to repay the debt of our sin. Our only hope is to throw ourselves at the feet of the king and beg for mercy, which for those whom he's called, he gives repentance and faith and graciously forgives our, unforgivable, our unpayable debt. After the forgiveness of a massive debt, we see the unforgiveness of a minor debt. As the forgiven slave then goes to his fellow slave and physically attacks him and demands he pay his debt of 100 denarii. When the fellow slave similarly begs for more time and mercy, the forgiven slave refuses and throws him in prison. And in this we see the picture of a Christian who's been forgiven an infinite debt in salvation and then does not forgive his brother who sinned against him. Following that, we saw the king respond by turning over the slave to the torturers and requiring him to repay his new debt of unforgiveness. And Christ concluded with a warning for us that if we do not forgive, we face the same fate as the slave in this parable. One of the reasons that I wanted to preach this passage of Scripture is a profound impact. The example of a godly Christian, this may be difficult for me, has forgiven me over and over again. I've shared my testimony here. And you know I was saved about 27 years ago. And for the first 10 or 12 years of that time, I was very spiritually immature. I didn't know God's word well. I was still in need of the milk of his word and not ready for the meat. During that time, I was prideful, selfish, impatient, and spoke harshly with my wife. That's the first 10 to 12 years after I became a Christian. In particular, I was often selfish and impatient with her. I expected her to do things exactly how I would do them or how I wanted them done. I was arrogant, and I usually believed my way was the right way. 
I did not understand what it meant to love my wife as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5.25, or to live with her in an understanding way, nor show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, 1 Peter 3.7, or to love her, not be harsh with her, Colossians 3.19. Excuse me. As a result, I sinned against her repeatedly. And not only that, I ingrained habits of and ways of thinking that were not easy to eliminate. As a result, even as I matured and I realized the evil of my behavior, I'd fall back into my old habits of sin. This was an area of sin in my life I battled over and over again for the 23 plus years that we've been married. Praise God, in the last several years, the Lord has allowed me to mostly throw off the old man in this area of sin in my life. And I rarely struggle with this anymore. But I bring that up, bring this up because during that time, my wife was an incredible example of Christian forgiveness. She graciously forgave me again and again for the same sin. Certainly far surpassing 77 times. Nonetheless, she graciously forgave. And even when I would struggle with this often, and she knew I was going to do it again soon enough, she would forgive. And do you know what her forgiveness did? First, it brought honor to God. We're called to forgive. And in our forgiveness, we bring glory to Christ. Second, it brought unity to our home. It shined as an incredible example to our children. God used it to show me the evil of my attitude and my thinking. He used it to conform me into the image of Christ. He used it to prepare me for the ministry that he had called me to. Jennifer is the most godly and Christ-like person I know. And her example of Christian forgiveness has profoundly impacted our family's life. Ladies, has your husband wronged you in a similar way? Has he failed to lead? To lead? You must forgive. Men, has your wife wronged you? Does she fail to submit to your leading? Has she withheld intimacy? You must forgive. Christian, children, have your fathers been too harsh with you? Have they provoked you with unreasonable expectations? You must forgive. Do you have a broken relationship with painful memories of how you've been wronged? You must forgive. Brothers and sisters, please listen now. This is deadly serious. We're committing a heinous offense against God when we do not forgive our brothers. Consider again your position before God, before you were saved. Romans 3 tells us, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses 
and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In the paths of ruin, in the in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That was you and that was me in our sin. We were his enemy. Our deeds were as filthy rags. You were rightly condemned to an eternity under the wrath of God. Then you repented and believed and threw yourself at the feet of the king and begged for mercy. And he forgave you. And now you have unfathomable blessings. You're declared righteous. You're made clean. You're justified. Christ is your propitiation and your expiation. These two things, the wrath you deserved on this side and the blessings you've been given on this side, they're infinitely far apart. And the Lord has transported you from the one to the other. Consider Luke twenty-three thirty-four, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers, are mock- the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And you know, you and I were right there with them, mocking Christ. We may not have physically been there, but our sins were mocking him just the same. And if you're listening to me now, and you've not experienced this forgiveness from God, if you've never thrown yourself at the feet of the king and begged for mercy, if you've not repented and believed, now is the time. Today is the day for salvation. You're guilty of an unpayable debt. Your only hope is the grace of God, which comes with faith and repentance. Find me after the service. I will share more of this good news with you. But for those of us who've received this forgiveness, after you've been forgiven your debt toward God, will you not forgive? It's just as absurd as the slave not forgiving his fellow slave the tiny debt in this parable. That's what makes this parable so effective. It shines a light on the absurdity of our lack of forgiveness. We read this parable, we think, that's ridiculous. No one would act this way. Then we immediately go and store bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts for a past wrong. Our lack of forgiveness is just as absurd. God is calling every one of us to forgive our brothers and sisters. Remember what the king has forgiven you of when you're sinned against. Remember the absurdity of not forgiving your brother in light of what God has forgiven of you. Let's pray. Lord, we confess we are weak, we're needy. So often we go astray. We harbor bitterness in our hearts. We do not forgive. We don't recognize the absurdity of our behavior, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would, you would break our hearts over that sin, Lord, that you would call us to confess and repent, that we would be a forgiving people, that we would build up our unity amongst one another by forgiving each other, that we would honor you in our forgiveness, that our only desire would be to honor you and to obey your word, Lord. I thank you so much for your forgiveness, for your son. 
that you transported me from that eternal wrath that I deserved to eternity in your presence. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.